You're listening to a Flower Pop production. Hello, lovely people. How are you? I hope you're good and I hope you're ready to be taken all around the world in some lovely slippers by today's guest. So I said, you know, what, do you, what do you wear on your feet when people come around for dinner? You don't want to put your shoes on because you're in your own house. It used to be old slippers that uh, you've been wearing for years and, and are cheap and nasty. You know, who wants to wear them with, a, with an outfit that you've put on? So I just thought, right, I'm going to do it. Anna El Shafi was all set to study English or law when a chance conversation meant she ended up studying Chinese instead. Anna didn't know then, but this would take her all around the world. She'd marry an Egyptian and she'd always have a sense of adventure. Then, when she was working as a construction lawyer, she couldn't find any slippers she wanted to wear when she was at home entertaining friends. So, guess what she did next? Well, I'll let Anna tell you all about it, but let's just say her slippers are now being worn all around the world. In this conversation, we talk about what it's really like to start your own business when you have absolutely no idea what to do. Anna also gives some really helpful and practical advice about how to begin a next chapter if you're stuck in a job you don't like but just can't afford to leave. Anna is open, honest and incredibly supportive. She believes life is just too short to be unhappy and she'll encourage anyone to just take that first step. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. The idea behind this podcast is that as I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak with some incredible people who've already started their next chapter in the hope it'll help you with your next chapter, or at the very least, you'll just enjoy the conversation. So here she is, Anna El Shafi. Anna El Shafi, I can't quite believe I'm saying this. Welcome to you from Egypt. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to tell your story because it's such a fascinating one. So thank you so much. And welcome to the next chapter by Ellie Barker. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. So we're going to go around the houses to work out why you are in Egypt at the moment. But first of all, we start as ever with the prologue. And you, you moved around quite a bit. And your dad was a Methodist minister. So you sort of moved churches every few years. But you, you were in Southampton, Portsmouth, wasn't it? It was a bit like that. You just kept moving. Yes, I mean, Methodism is based on a John Wesley, who was an itinerant minister. He, he went around the country on a horse. So the, the Methodists still traditionally move around every, it was five years when I was growing up. I think it's a little bit longer now. So he would move churches and areas every five years or so. So obviously we moved with him. And my brother and I were both born in Southampton and moved to Portsmouth when we were pretty small children, and then later to southeast London, northwest Kent, Bromley, um, where we did most of our growing up, I would say. <laughs> okay. And then, so, and you said you had that, quite an ordinary English childhood, apart from the fact that your dad was a minister. But also, I love this, that you liked school, and you said you were probably a bit annoying because you were a little bit, dare I say, a bit of a smart ass. Your word there, Anna, not mine. But um, actually, you know, you just, you, you really did enjoy school and you did very well academically. I did I did well academically. I was I was very good at everything, but not particularly brilliant at anything. Um, I look back on it with a lot of affection, mainly because we were horrible. I think we were a horrible class of bright kids. We were the last grammar school intake of of a school that then became a comprehensive school. And for some reason, without telling any of the parents or any of the any of us, they decided to name the the four classes in that year a b c d and they divided the kids academically a b c d they didn't even disguise it they didn't make the a's the d's or anything like that so we were quite and i don't know how this leaked out because i think it was some sort of an experiment anyway so we were the a's and uh, i think a little bit cocky with it and we were just horrible but we had a great time i mean we we just spent the whole day, every day, trying to make each other laugh. We must have been just horrid to teach. But the main thing is, well, you had fun. You had fun. And um, so, and you said that, in fact, even though your father was a minister, you you weren't what we perhaps would think you would be as a, like a religious family. There weren't Bible stories or family prayers, even though, say, no. you know, despite his job. Yeah, no, that's that's never been a thing. Never been a thing in our family. 
always used to take school friends by surprise you know they'd, they'd come home for tea and they'd say oh god we've got to say prayers and things and i'd no what are you thinking and they'd be very surprised that we were a perfectly ordinary family i think there's a bit of an expectation of clergy families that they are going to be a little bit on the pious side or a little bit sanctimonious is probably too strong a word but but that there will at least be some nod to religion but actually it was really just happened to be what our dad did I mean, the only we were talk more likely to be talking about church people or what was going on or what would what we were all doing in the day. And if he was doing a funeral, there was a family ritual where we'd say, "What are you doing? I'm doing a funeral today. Who for? A man who lost his wife." And then we'd all pause slightly and then say, "How careless!" So it was you know one of those silly family jokes. There's a bit of black humour, I suppose. Mm. And did it give, I mean, did it teach you a lot seeing the kind of work he was doing? I mean, like that, but sort of gave you a bit of a sense of life and community in a way that perhaps you don't normally growing have sort of growing up? Yes, possibly. I mean, I think I didn't enjoy going to church and nor did my brother. I mean, my, our parents insisted that we did until we were old enough to say, no, we don't like this. But the community element of it, definitely I enjoyed and I think my, my parents, even to this day, are con- in, well into their 80s now, and they are constantly looking for what can, what can they do to help people? Hmm. So, you know, anybody's in need, what can I do? And you know, I'm at the point of saying, look, you're in your 80s now, it's time for other people to be helping you. But they still don't see it like that. Hmm. So, and even my mum will say, oh, I'm going to visit some of my old ladies. And I say, well, you are an old lady now, <laughs> But it's... So I think I think very much instilled in me was you help people when you can. If you can, you do. Mm. And that's that that's just a sort of blanket thing. Mm-hmm. Mm, absolutely. And where are they now, Anna? Where are your parents? They're in Canterbury. Right, okay. So the last part of my dad's ministry, he he moved to Canterbury um to be the Methodist minister there. And they stayed post retirement and they've been They've been gloriously happy there. So it's a really good place to be and grow old, actually. Oh, how lovely. What a lovely thing to hear. And so you you were, I mean, you enjoyed music when you were in your late teenage years. I know you you said you played percussion in youth band and orchestra. So you were doing that, but you were thinking more that you really wanted to go into law. That was, yes. There was always in the back of my mind, I'm going to be a lawyer at some point. Um. So that's what I was working towards, I suppose, or I thought I was at that point. The music was very much, that just took up most of my time outside school towards my late teenage years and was brilliant. It was just brilliant. In Bromley, they have really high quality music for, for kids. And I mean, there are lots of professional musicians in London who, who came from that background. And we went on tours to international tours, we went to the States, we went to Austria and, and we did all sorts of concerts all around the country. So it was, it, and that was a brilliant community of people, made some of my best friends there who are still friends now. So you really thought you were going to, though, you thought you were either going to plan to study English or law because you thought about, um, you always thought about being a barrister, but it was actually a French teacher, funnily enough, that put the idea of studying Chinese into mm. your mind. So how, how did that all come about? And that then took you to university, to, to Leeds. Yes. Yes. So that was really out of the blue. I mean, I, as I say, I always thought I would uh, study law or English and become a barrister. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a set plan, but it was like, well, okay, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, but I was always good at languages. And it was a, a French teacher. Actually, she, he said it to my to my father. You know, she's good at languages. Why doesn't she do something like French, French with um, Chinese or something like that at university. And my dad came home and told me this, and I said, "What well, ridiculous idea!" But it took root, and I I read a bit, and it was this is late eighties, so must have been eighty five, eighty six, and when the people were starting to say China is going to open up, things are going to happen over there, and um, Deng Xiaoping had been starting to make sort of commercial 
inroads into China, you know, allow policies that meant the Chinese could go into commercial ventures and be a little bit more capitalist, dare I say it. And I just thought, yeah, this is going to be interesting. Things are going to happen. And this is a really interesting language to, to, you know, to, to have a go at. Now, I knew nothing about it. You start a Chinese degree with, with ab initio, as they say. You don't, you don't need any background in it. So they would take you, they'd take you if you were a scientist, actually, as long as you were interested. <laughs> it, was, it was fantastic. It was one of the best things I ever did. Loved it right from the start. They, uh, on the first day of learning a, a, you know, Chinese lessons, they, are, they, they taught us, I don't know, 10 words and said, right, go away and learn them just seemed an absolute impossibility because do you know anything about Chinese no nothing at all when you I mean you'll know it's characters Mm. so in order to learn a word in Chinese you need to learn the character right and that means you need to learn to recognize it you need to learn how to write it and you need to know the transliteration of it so that you know how to say it and then you need to know what it means so and you've got to learn how to pronounce it. Yeah, I mean, pronouncing it is a bit of a nightmare to start with. They send you to China for the second year of a Chinese degree. They did when I did it. Mm. I don't know what they do now. But whereas, you know, with, with French, you do a couple of years or Spanish or whatever. You do a couple of years and then you go in your third year and then you come back. With Chinese, obviously, you can't do much in Chinese until you've actually got some decent experience in the language. So they send us in the second year. And it was, you know, obviously that's a bit of a baptism of fire because you arrive in China. Mm, Well, well, what, what, what? what. But uh, it was fascinating right from the very start. God, that's that's just incredible. All, you know, it could have just been so different. And then there, you know, I mean, you know, you could have done French and then, or just, but then you didn't. And it just took you down a whole different path. It's fascinating. And so, I mean, you really did love it there and so and you returned to Beijing on a British Council's um, scholarship immediately after graduating so this was then it was now in you yeah I was absolutely determined to go back I mean part of the determination came from the fact that our year in China as part of the degree was cut short by Tiananmen we we were all evacuated from the from the university and from China when that happened so a big, a big di- diplomatic car arrived at the big British car with a with a flag on it arrived at the university and said, "Hey, you go find your mates. We all uh, we're taking you, we're taking you home." Oh, I, said, I think they didn't say we're taking you home at that point. They took us to stay with diplomatic personnel for a night or two, and then chartered a plane and took us out. So we ended up leaving rather earlier than we'd we'd intended and I I think by that time I always knew I was going to come back again and spend some time in China but that made me absolutely determined to go back straight away as soon as I finished my degree and that's what I did. Mm. So you were if it was your second year so what were you about 19, 20 at this stage? Yeah, not, yeah, twenty. I think. Yeah, that's so. I mean, I went to France when I was eighteen, and that was that was a big enough of a shock for me and my friend, uh, my lovely friend, who's still one of my best friends now. But and we talk about that. But to go to China and then to and then to have that happen—that you're told to go home—I mean, what an experience! But it didn't put you off, and you went out there again, and that's where you met your husband, who is Egyptian, which may give us a clue as to why you're in Egypt today. Yeah, it does. So. Yeah, that was that was not in the program to meet and marry an Egyptian. That, that, that really, in China, that bit, yeah, yeah, bit left field. That was not not on the cards. Um, took absolutely everyone by surprise, including me and Mohammed, my husband. Um, yeah, it was very strange. The, the, I always think the interesting thing is that everybody used to say to me, oh, you, "You married an Egyptian? What does his family think of that?" And he's a Muslim. What do they think of that? And it was oddly my family who were a bit, what? Yeah, wow. What do you mean? What? 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 Yeah. But they were totally right from the outset, completely relaxed about it. Mm. Completely. Where did you have your wedding? In Hong Kong. Um, And then we had 
a wedding reception sort of thing back in the UK. Right, right. And what did your dad think of it all as well? But what with him being a, a minister? Oh, he he's very interested in uh, interfaith matters and um, international relations and politics and all sorts of things. So he was he was a bit thrown by it at first, I think. Um, but yeah, he was just very interested. Very interested to talk to Mohammed and see what he believes and find the common ground and also the differences. So they had a lot of interesting conversations. I'd have to leave the room because it all got a bit tedious for me, the, yeah. <laughs> the constant religious conversations. Yeah. So, no, yeah, that's very, I mean, it is interesting, I suppose. It's really interesting. And I, I'm just, only because I'm fascinated, Who did you have a big wedding in Hong Kong or was it just the two no, of you? No, 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 like nobody. No, so no. It, was, it was the two of us, a couple of friends who happened to be, I think about four or five friends. So a, a few um, people I'd been at university with who were, still in the area and somebody we were working with at the time mm-hmm. we got in as uh, as witnesses and then we just had a, a meal in a restaurant it was very i mean because obviously we weren't going to have a church wedding because he's muslim and and i, and I didn't want, obviously i didn't want an islamic wedding so so that was the that was the um the compromise situation mm. then the further compromise was okay he didn't want to live in England. I didn't want to live in Egypt. So we just stayed in China. Mm. Wow. Okay. And how old were you at this stage? 24. Okay. Okay. Wow. So quite early. I was I was one of the first of my friends to get married. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, what an adventure. What an adventure. So, yeah. I mean, really is. And say so it would have been different if you'd gone to France, Anna. I think it really would have been. It wouldn't have been quite the same. Um, and so... We so he started an export business and you did a few jobs, um, but you and then you had your daughter in 1997. So you so and then Mohammed didn't want any more children, and so you decided, do you know what? I need a career that you could do, and this is when you then went back to the idea of being a lawyer. Yes, exactly. So I managed to marry the only Arab in the whole world who didn't want a hundred children. <laughs> so. And, and to be fair, he he had been married before before we met, so he had he does have two older children from his first marriage. So, so to be fair, and um, but you know I tried all sorts of arguments for that, but he really didn't want he didn't want more children. So I had to go. Okay, right, fine. Well, if we're not going to have lots of children, then I need to do something useful with my life. Um, so I took our daughter, and he had to stay in China and earn money to feed us. So I went back to the UK and trained as a lawyer wow so I was there for a few years um the 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 downside of that was that because I took our daughter with with me she had been starting in Guangzhou she was only two at that point so she was just starting to speak and she was picking up of course English from me Arabic from him Chinese and Cantonese wow so I did her a bit of a disservice I think really because having taken her away it was a case of after a year or so, she lost it. She lost all those languages. And talking to her father on the phone, it was like, well, why is daddy making these funny noises if if, if he tried to speak in Arabic? <laughs> so she doesn't speak, she doesn't speak Arabic at all, really. She did, she does speak Chinese because, because we came back later and she spent some time in a Chinese school. But it, it, that's a shame. That's yeah. That's the one thing I do regret about the whole that whole exercise yeah but then you I mean you were learning to be a lawyer and did you used to see Mohammed in the holidays did you just go back in the summer holidays yeah so we would go back in the summer or he would come over mostly we would go back because you know obviously he was working he had things to do so yeah that's what we did for for a few years Mm, that's really tough Anna really really tough and a brave decision because lots of people wouldn't just wouldn't you know would think oh it's just too much I can't do that but so you were very determined to do that yes I think I think uh, it's not something I would have done if we hadn't been married a few years already and weren't already very very solid I mean there's there's obviously something about the bond with between the two of us I mean it's been 30 years it'll be 30 years towards the end of this month our 30th wedding anniversary and you know we are entirely unsuited to each other in just about every way you know different different cultures different religions different 
ways of thinking, just everything, even even he's a morning person and I'm not. So nothing was, it was never going to be easy. And we were, we were alive to that right from the very start. Mm. And neither of us were prepared to compromise ourselves. So we, we just argued all the time. Um, for, you know, not in a terrible way but we would argue and then we right okay well we'll have to move on from that then (laughs) so but it was it was it was always going to be well you know we're in this we're in this together and so if it was a matter of okay well I need to spend some time somewhere else that's what we were going to do um and we have basically spent the last 20 years mostly apart I would say still on this sort of almost weekend basis Mm. I would be, I came back and came to Hong Kong and worked and he was in Guangzhou. So he stayed in Guangzhou and then I was in Shanghai. So we would be flying backwards and forwards to see each other. So it wasn't, we didn't enjoy that part of it. We didn't, we didn't like being apart, but it was, it was necessary and somehow it worked. Mm. Because I remember saying to some American friends, this doesn't really work, this relationship. And they said, well, obviously it does. Well, no, but it doesn't. But it does, doesn't it, Anna? Obviously, it works because you're. Yeah, you're <laughs> so still going kind of round and round. I think it's like I do love a romance, Anna. I do love a romance. I write romance, so I think that's a lot. I mean, that's it's a lovely romance, and also good that you. How brilliant that you stuck to doing what you did want to do, and you did have those arguments because so often you see it within couples that people just lose themselves and just go along, and and what a waste. Yeah, I, I mean, I was very determined not to do that I mean we're both strong characters he is unbelievably stubborn which I think is probably a good thing um because you know I don't shut up he I mean this is why these days we speak English to each other rather than Chinese which is what we spoke to each other at the beginning that's amazing because I do all the talking but I think (laughs) it's it's really important not to lose yourself in a relationship and you know they're going to be there are always going to be these enormous differences. So unless we each, you know, were very solid in our in our sense of self, I think one of us could easily have been been subsumed, and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked like that. No, one of us would have been unhappy, and that that's that's no recipe for a successful marriage. Of course, it's not. I mean, but you know, an Egyptian meeting an English girl speaking Chinese you couldn't make it up even in one of my fiction books I couldn't make that one up but that's just amazing I know it was absurd it was absolutely absurd we, we were a very odd couple <laughs> at, that, at that beginning but the Chinese, Chinese completely took it in their stride oh yeah well yeah okay speaking Chinese well yeah great oh just amazing and so what kind of lawyer did you become um initially I was a construction lawyer in in Hong Kong and then I moved to Shanghai and I did all sorts of things so it was it was basically a case of advising foreign clients I mean as a, as a as an international as a foreign lawyer you you can't really um, technically you can't practice Chinese law so you are advising foreign clients on their investments in China so at that point it was and anything comes in the door you just dealt with it. So it was extremely varied, very exciting. You had to pick up, and, and it was terrifying because you think, well, I, I don't know anything about this. So like you know, chemicals, if somebody wanted to do a chemicals plant, you think, right, I've got to find out what are all the regulations in China about chemicals and get the, get those in place and advise these people and about setting up a company and about doing a joint venture if that's what they want to do and all the pitfalls so it was it was yeah it was very exciting yeah really and, really exciting. and really allowing me to use my chinese was re- you know that was really enjoyable i love speaking chinese but i didn't have to do it all the time yeah and and everything i was drafting i was drafting in english because i would never i wouldn't i think i could study chinese for 100 years and i would never get to the point of being able to draft a, a really good piece of advice in chinese wow. i don't think i would ever be able to do it I know, but what you were doing anyway in Chinese. And I mean, I've, I've, I've been to Hong Kong, um, but I mean, to actually live there, I mean, because I thought Hong Kong was amazing. But what was it like to live in Hong Kong and Shanghai? Um, the, the two are really quite different. Hong Kong is, 
or certainly was, I mean, it, it certainly is a difference in weather for a start. So that that makes a big impact on lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So you had a very expatty lifestyle in Hong Kong with things like going out on junks on the, the you know, those boats mm-hmm. or, or boats on the on the water at the weekend. And then, and it's very, oh, I don't even know how to describe what life was in, in Hong Kong. I mean, obviously it's very centered around work and my daughter's school. And we just made lots of friends, but it was, it was always very busy Hong Kong. So you would, you would go out into the, into the um, town centre and it's just masses of people all the time. And there's, and there's a real buzz about Hong Kong, or there was. I don't know if there still is. I haven't been back for a while and things have been changing. But it, had, it just had a feeling of excitement and that you could, anything could get done. Mm. You know, whatever you wanted to find or get somebody to do, you could, or you wanted to do yourself, you, you could do it. And equally, you could you could go out into the countryside, into the walk through the jungle. You could get a boat over to islands and, and walk across, and it was it was marvelous. Mm. It was marvelous. It was hot. It was a bit hot and it was a bit humid, but you just you just get used to that. People always say, "Oh, I couldn't deal with the weather." You you deal with the weather wherever you are. I think mm. Shanghai was was different because then you're in China, and it's it's much it's much bigger. So whereas Hong Kong is on a, a small scale and everything is really sort of crowded together. Shanghai is huge and, and with, with big roads. But again, it has its buzz about it. And there's a wonderful thing about the Shanghainese that they, they think of themselves as the most superior people in China. And they, they probably are, actually. They are just, they can just do things. They're really smart and they, they just know what they're about. You know, I saw young lawyers who would, who were just absolutely determined to, right, I'm going to, I'm going to master this. Mm. And then they would set out and do it. They just, if they want to do something, the Chinese will just, will do it. They're brilliant. And then, so you sort of slowly became a little bit fed up with this, a little bit. So this is now moving into your, into your next chapter. And you decided to, to, to stop this and go freelance, move to where Mohammed was. And this is where you started to get the seeds of an idea of doing something completely different. Yeah. So I was working, um, yeah, I moved here to, to live with him, as you say, and was doing this freelance lawyering. But I'd had in the back of my mind for ages that I would like to start a business doing something else of, of my own. And I had also been bothered by the fact that I couldn't buy decent slippers. And I, I, I don't know whether this is there's some sort of deep psychological <laughs> oh, thing of but I love my somebody slippers. who spends so, so much time going around different countries that, yeah. that I have this need to be at home. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know whether that comes into it, but... I, I just I like slippers. I just like slippers, and I I've always had cold feet, so I want I wear slippers constantly, and I just couldn't find any that I thought were a bit elegant mm. that I could wear with with nice clothes at home. Mm. They just didn't seem to exist, and I I looked in all those places that somebody like me looks in so <laughs> so sort of slightly not cheap end of the of the high street I didn't want I wasn't you know I wasn't going designer I'm sure you, you can get 500 pound pairs of yeah of swanky posh slippers I didn't want that I didn't want something ridiculous but I, I was really fed up with cheap cheap nastiness and you know and I looked for a while and I thought this might be it. this might be the thing and so I looked a bit more and I talked to people and, and everybody said, oh, yeah, you're right. So I said, yeah, what, do you, what do you wear on your feet when people come around for dinner? Mm. You, you, don't want to put, you don't want to put your shoes on because you're in your own house. Mm. And, you know, is it, are your crappy old slippers that uh, you've been wearing for years and, and are cheap and nasty. Yeah. You know, who wants to wear them with, a, with an outfit that you've put on? And even day to day, I really felt that, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been a, a huge revolution in loungewear over the last yeah. 10 years or so. There's lovely loungewear out there. And I really didn't feel that slippers had kept up. So where, were the, where, was, where was the footwear to go yeah. with this lovely loungewear that was available? So I just thought, right, I'm going to do it. And Mohammed, who you know is, is an exports, 
you know, he would go to trade fairs and things, and I would say, look, you look for the slippers for me. Look for and he would, he would go and he would come back and he said, no, there isn't. As I told you, they don't exist. They don't exist, what I'm after. So I, I yeah, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to make them myself. And I found a, I just Googled and found a designer in, in the UK um, and found Jess, Jess Good, who was brilliant. She, she got what I was talking about. And she said, yeah, I do, I do think that's a gap in the market. Um, let's do it. So she wow. helped me. But, so I had all this, I had this picture in my brain, but, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not arty. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, so, I mean, I can, I can sketch. So I was, you know, making little sketches for her and saying something like this. And, and we discussed, and I want it to be made of this and, and I want it to be warm. I want it to be really soft. I want it to be easy to take on, put on and easy to take off. And I want it to be roughly this shape. So she then took that and made that into a proper specification mm. that I could then take to, to, to somebody in China because China is the natural place for me to do anything. Yeah. Of course. Um, so I found, so I found a, um, a workshop in China to do that for me. Now, by this stage, we're in coronavirus time. Mm. So mm. I had been, Mohammed and I had been on holiday with friends going down the Nile, doing that, you know, Agatha Christie job. So we did, we did the, went down the Nile, had a lovely time. And then I came back to the UK with, because our daughter was about to do her finals. Mohammed went back to China and that was it. We were stuck. Mm. We were stuck because China wouldn't let anybody in then for the next two years. In fact, I haven't been back yet. I'm going back at the end of this month. So we were then stuck apart for two years again like completely apart this isn't oh, weekend God. spouses this is completely apart the the positive side of that is that he was able to go to the factory for me check that it was nice you know nice people talk to them so he did all that bit for me um and so i had to do everything over the phone i couldn't go myself so yes yeah, so we designed we took jess's design took them to this factory and they produced they produced these for me amazing they're amazing and sorry forgive me where so where were you at this stage anna where were you i was in i i was in rygate you got right in okay. surrey right. yeah we have a house there so that's where i was basing myself for that for that period Right. Okay. God. So you didn't see your husband. It's all very complicated. Isn't well, it? well, it, I mean, it, it, exotic. I would describe it as exotic, Anna. Not so much complicated. But so that I mean, that's just amazing. So just so coming up with an idea. This is this is something that's missing. It's something I want. It makes perfect sense. No contacts in the industry at all. Just googling. No. Googling a designer, you know, trusting yeah. your instinct, going with Jess, and then there you are, and then all of it, now you've got your own business. I mean, this just that's just incredible. I know, I know, I can't believe it. Sometimes it was, it was really just one of those things that I've, I've, I've got to give this a go. I've yeah. got to try it. Yeah. You know, if I don't, I'm just going to spend my my life thinking, wow, well, I should have given that a go. So, and it's so enjoyable to do something completely different. You know, when you've been doing, and and, and I really enjoyed being a lawyer. I, I I do enjoy being a lawyer, but it's just, this is quite different. Enjoyed looking at colours, putting colours together and thinking, yeah, these these would be good. This fabric is nice. Um, this is the sort of shape I'm after. I want clean lines. I want this shape of toe. And it was just something that I had never done, that sort of creative part of me I'd never been able to use before or never never tried to use before I suppose no it just goes to show though what's what's in you when you, we just don't realize we've got like these sleeping you know giants whatever they're called at the bottom and you just don't tap into them but so how did you turn it into then like a, a business I mean how did you learn how to how to do that to sort of presume because you sell online I think don't you and how how did you do that and the marketing and everything that came with that did you what did you do I got help. Mm. I got help. I just asked around and, and found people to help me because, you know, I knew absolutely nothing about any of these things. So I made these slippers. So I, I got, you know, got that bit, mm. got that bit. And then, right, how do I, how do I sell the things? So, you know, I needed a website. I needed branding. I needed photography. You know, this is only the tip of the iceberg. So those are the first few things. And 
what I found was there are a lot of people who will tell you what you need to do, but finding people who will actually help you do it is, mm. is harder. So, for example, your website. So once you've got your website, you really need to maintain it. You need to get SEO happening. And people will tell you how to do that, but actually you need some help. You mm-hmm. can't do it. So you can listen to somebody and say, right, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's, that sounds pretty straightforward. I can do that. But then when you actually go to do it, it's really, really tricky mm-hmm. because obviously they're an expert. They've made doing what, what they do sound very straightforward and easy. And then when you actually do it, not so much. So you either spend your life trying to gather all the skills that you need to run a business or you get some help and actually acquiring all the skills is an impossibility you just can't as mm-hmm. as, as my daughter said to me once yeah mum that's why these things are all jobs yeah you can't you can't do it all so you know I've learned as much as I can about everything but ultimately you need help so and at every stage, I've, I've found people who will help me in all small businesses, all you know, brilliant people who do it. And Jess is, was the first. So mm. that's the first example. She runs a, a shoe design business of her own. So she was the first one. She put me, and people will put you on to people. That's the other yeah. thing. So she then put me on to Susanna Davda, who is a shoe consultant. Wow. I mean, who knew there was such a thing? I didn't know. No. No. No, she yeah. helps. She's brilliant. She helps small shoe, shoe brand founders. So she was brilliant. And when I met Jess and she told me, she said, the only thing is she lives in Bromley. I said, oh, so I know Bromley. That's, <gasps> that's, that's, that's fine. That seemed like a sign to There's me. the universe. Yeah, that's the universe talking to me. So, and then she, and then Susanna put me on to the good photographers. And then it's, it kind of, it kind of went like that. So, you know, people put you on to other people. Um, and the, the person who's really helping me at the moment is uh, a, a guy who does SEO and website work and he's just been brilliant mm. he's brilliant I would I was totally lost with that I'd got the website up and running but that was it you know when you when you start a brand you if you're doing it online okay you've got your product you've got your website and it's beautiful but nobody knows yeah. nobody knows you've got to get it out there yeah, so that somebody actually because it's not like going to a market or something is it you can stand there and say no Look at me. Yes, people go by. People have actually got to find you. Yeah. And would you say that, that would you say the the man who's helping you with the SEO is that is that what's helping people find you the most, do you think? Oh, definitely. Mm. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. And when you say that for anyone who doesn't understand so SEO is your search, I should know this, search engine optimization. Yay. So yay. What's getting you up the Google ranking so that when people put in a term like slippers yeah then you come up i mean and something like slippers i as a little tiny business cannot compete with somebody like clark's or marks and spencer yeah because they've got tons of web pages and they're spending an awful lot of money on advertising and on google so we have to be a bit clever so we say we've been using luxury slippers and luxury slippers for women in terms like that and and getting ourselves up the um of the SEO rankings that way. Wow. But that's been absolutely vital because if you start off on social media, which is what I was trying to do initially, Instagram things, people people go through Instagram to just to look at stuff and just, okay, well, that's interesting, that's interesting. And you might pique their interest with a product, but more likely they're, oh, they're just looking at things and they'll just scroll past. For... If you're wanting to sell a product, you need to you need to find people who are looking for that product. Mm. So that's where SEO comes in, and you've got to find people who are looking for the type of product that you that you want that they want. Yeah. So it's, it, it, I mean, it's and it's changing all the time. Yeah, that's in, that's fascinating though. That is a different way of looking at. It. And again, for somebody listening, Anna, did you have a because obviously these things do come up at a cost, and we know that sort of setting up a business there is a cost before you start earning money. Did you have a certain amount of money that you thought, right, I'll I'll invest in all these different things, or did you just slowly sort of get one and then get going a bit with the business and then invest a bit more, or how, how did how did this how did you do this? Because I know money is such a sore subject, but we we do need to talk about it because this is. Oh. This God, is the yeah. key, isn't it? No, the sensible thing to do would have been the first thing you said. Yeah. 
definitely. And if I ever do another business, that's what I would do, a budget and, a, you know, all the plan and do it really sensibly. This was far too much of a passion project for me. It was, I've got to do this, I'm going to do it, and I'll just, I'll work it out as I go along. Yeah. So I financed it with by my freelance lawyering work, mm. and I'm and I'm still doing that. Mm. And it will take a while before it actually makes any money. Mm. I mean, certainly, this is not something I could have done if I had been on my own and not married to someone who was working. Mm-hmm. So are you still doing? Yeah. You're still doing your law work. Off and on, I do. I do bits. I do, I don't do it on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So it when it when some comes up I don't go out looking for it particularly but it, it does keep me going Mm-mm. but this is all part of it isn't it and again what we don't perhaps talk enough about is it's not necessarily that you have this I mean it is a great idea you have an amazing idea you stop what you're doing as a lawyer and then here we go and within a year or two it's going to be booming it's just not for some people it don't, might work like that but the reality is and I get I speak to so many people here on the podcast with the next chapter all different next chapters and it's that that we mustn't get disheartened because I'm, I'm talking out loud to myself here as well Anna with my own books but it it takes a long long time to build the momentum to build the customers it takes years and years doesn't it yeah it takes ages and that I would say is the hardest part yeah of running a business absolutely the hardest part is keeping the faith and I'm not very good at that at times really I'm not so I will get periods where I just I don't know it's not going to work I can't do it I can't do it well who do I think I am why do I think I can run a business you're just you're just some lawyer from from southeast London you can't do this sort of thing and then I'll turn around and you know give myself a talking to and say come on other people have done this so why shouldn't you be able to do it yeah yeah it's simple as that yeah I would say Anna a determined lawyer a determined lawyer so not just some lawyer so I think that already sets you in a good you know position and you are in Egypt at the moment but where are you where are you normally based there's no there's no good answer to that at the moment (laughs) I don't really know so if you'd asked me a few years ago I'd have said we're based in China Mm. but we're we're in Guangzhou and then I spent a couple of years in England because of COVID. So I was very much based there. I was quite settled for a while. And now my husband, unfortunately, has been diagnosed with cancer and oh. this time, well, nearly a year ago now. Oh, so he came back. I came from the UK to here, to, to Egypt, um, in preparation for him coming. And then he, he became ill and, has, and then came and joined me. So we've been getting treatment for him here in Egypt. Mm. Um, so we've been we've been here for the last six months, six months. Or so right now we're based here. Mm. But he, I did mention that he is the most stubborn man in the world, is determined to go back to China at the end of this month. Okay. So we will see. Okay. Well, I, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you two. I guess. Yeah. And and all I the guess. time you can be working with your slippers because this is the beauty of it. You can work on it anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. I mean, it's so like you. Be in England, I'll be in Egypt, I'll be in China. And it's all a matter. I'm sitting here talking to you. I sit here t- talking to, you know, other people. Just thank goodness for video calls and yeah. Zoom and Skype and this, that and the other. Yeah, made even easier now, I think, post the pandemic as well. But isn't that amazing? Like you say, I think... I mean, this is using the amateur psychology, but uh, yeah, that you've got your different homes, but you've got your lovely slippers and that's your sense yeah. of home. That's brilliant. It's amazing, Anna. It's amazing. So so to be continued, what would you like to do next with this? I want to build this brand into a, into a boutique slipper business. So it will, I mean, we could add some accessories and things, but I want to focus on slippers. I think it's a worthwhile product. Um, and I would, I would really just like to to build it. The next thing is to get some new because we started with a very tiny range of a few a few colours, and we just launched a year ago. So the next thing is to do more colours, different materials, and and build it and be patient. Be patient about the building because a friend, you know, as a friend of mine who's a business lecturer said you know quite often these things go slowly 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 and then suddenly take off Mm. so I'm waiting for that to happen so hopefully that will happen Mm. I've also got in mind to write down some of these experiences I've had 
I think it would be a good, probably a good cathartic experience for me. And you never know, somebody might be interested to read it. Yeah, I think so. Some of mine had life. I think so. And even as even if you just start off like as a little blog or something, but the, the, I mean, God, Anna, there's not many people that can say that they've lived the lives that you have, you know, in, in those different places. So I think you really should. But I think it's really interesting you say that about because I, you know, I think it's known as like the messy middle. But it's one thing when you like you launch something, you begin something and it's like, yay. And then it's just then it. It's that when you're a couple of years in, which is where I am as well, where I am at the moment, and you think, okay, all right, now this is, and actually for some reason, some things like marketing, I find at the moment, it, I'm finding it harder and hard, harder. Um, so it's, you've got to just keep with it, haven't you? You've got to keep with it. Yeah, how long have you? How long have you, is it since you left your? Was, well, it, was it? The- well, I still work as a journalist, so I still so like you. I mean, I work do that, but I first published my uh, book. So I self after sort of ten years of rejections from agents and publishers, I self published my books just over two years ago now. So I've done three books. I'm now on my fourth. But the continual marketing of, I mean, that side of things. I mean, I'm going to just say it out loud, Anna. I'm terrible at it. I'm terrible at it. And it's it's. It's having that mindset that you've got to just keep doing it, but also changing it into a mindset because I'm ter- I don't like the idea of selling at all. My dad was a great salesperson, but I'm understanding it's not about selling, is it? It's about, you know, for uh, finding women who will like what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And that's a different mindset altogether. Yeah, I'm sure you, it, it must be helping building this community through the podcast yes because what you need is a, is a community of people who think like you do and who want the same things you do and are interested in what you've got to say yeah yeah and seeing people who are uh I think there's I think it's just to you know so many of us you know we think about these things but when you actually step over that, that line and you start doing it it's a I think it's a very brave thing to do um and I terrifying, I, isn't it? it's terrifying, terrifying. Yeah. and I feel on a daily basis such a wally <laughs> I think I just feel a wally I feel a wally I I was described as something the other day as an author and I was like but I'm not an author because you know but but I am but I but you know it's it's all of that isn't it it's all of that which we don't talk about enough but uh I'm pleased it's not just me Anna I would imagine you'd cope with it a lot better than I do but no doubt it (laughs) oh amazing but so your acknowledgements who would you like to thank who uh, are the people who have helped you along the way there have been all sorts of people. I mean, as I say, I knew absolutely nothing about how to start off in this business. And I have needed help with every single stage of it. And there, there have been a lot of people, so I can't possibly mention them all. But um, Jess, I've already mentioned. Susanna, I've already mentioned. Um, I used a lovely mark, a branding agency led by the wonderful Lydia Mansi for a while. She was absolutely super. Right now, with Mohammed being ill and um, my energy levels, therefore, really, you know, peaking and troughing really quite badly at times, I have been so grateful to um, Pete, Ascendant Content, who is who's the SEO guy who I mm. mentioned, and to Sarah Stark, who put mm. us in touch. Yes. Those have been those two have been geeing me along, and I think really with with the sort of things that have been going on in my personal life, Shafi could quite easily have died death mm. over the last year. So I'm really grateful to them for for you know keeping my spirits up really. Mm. Um, and most of all, I'm I'm grateful to Mohammed because if he hadn't gone and done the legwork in China for me, I don't think I would have been happy to trust my slippers to anyone I haven't met and you know and to make sure that the place was nice you know, yeah. they were nice people and you know because you, you you need to be careful with who you're doing business with so that would have all had to be done over zoom or whatsapp or wechat which is the Chinese version so if he hadn't done all that I don't think we would I would have got going so I'm really grateful to those people in particular. Mm, I think Mohammed's stubbornness, you know, I think it's it's helps out as a lot. Yeah, well, it's it's an advantage and a disadvantage. I mean, from day to day, <laughs> I can tell you, it's very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, but your his stubbornness, your determination, uh, you know. But you're right, and and actually, this is something again. Perhaps we don't sort of touch on. But when you're doing these things on your own, it is the downside, isn't it? That you know, when you're in a staff job somewhere, and perhaps if you can take a couple of weeks off or a few weeks off, um, and, and compassionate leave and that sort of thing. But this is all on you. So to have people like you say, like Pete and Sarah, there just just encouraging you. But how lovely that you've created this own kind of community of your own. And this is again the the magic of what these next chapters are all about yeah let's hope so i mean i think i think another thing about working on your own is if you are a a sort of extrovert like i am as in somebody who gets their energy from other people Mm. that that's quite hard you know whereas muhammad is is a introvert so you know he's quite happy sort of sitting quite quietly i need to talk and i need to talk to people so you know so to make a community that of people I can talk to is absolutely vital for yeah, me. Yeah, and all sort of on the same page as well. That's the other thing about how supportive people are. And somebody listening might think, oh, well, you know, but you're paying them. But it's not that. You can pay anyone, but it's finding the people who are really, really passionate and are behind what you're doing makes such a difference to yourself. No, yeah, it's enormous. It's, it's, it's enormously important. And, you know, there are a lot of small businesses out there that who will who don't charge too much and that's what you that's what you need to find because obviously you're working on a on a budget at the early stages so i mean the alternative is you've got no money at all you then you do have to learn the skills yourself and it's not impossible especially if you're younger and you've got a bit more energy than i have but you know the people are out there who will be very supportive will help and there are a lot of um business hubs out there especially women's one um, Susanna, who I mentioned, she runs a, a community of uh, shoe people, okay. so and that's good. You know that you can talk to people on that. Um, and there's a woman called Haley. What's her name? Haley Southwood. Okay. She she runs the Southwood Social Hub, which is a community of really supportive women, okay. which I haven't been I haven't been in touch with for a few months, and I need to get back into. But they're just wonderful. Yeah, it's all out there. There are people around who who will help. Yeah, it's all out there, isn't it? So this actually moves on very nicely then to our final section, tips and advice. So so this is the point, isn't it? It is all out there. And in today's world, it's much more, so much is for free as well. There's so much podcast, blogs, all this kind of thing, information that you, in a way, I think there never has been. So like we were talking a little bit earlier, a bit like, say, like a sleeping giant, let's call it a sleeping giant that lies at the bottom of you. And it's that there, that niggle. So yours was creating slippers and designing them, which you would never have believed. Who knew? Who knew? Who knew? Even, I mean, when you were back in that school, Anna, and then you, they were being naughty. Who knew that this is where, and through China and everywhere. I mean, my goodness, what a, what a journey, a complete journey. So for somebody listening to this who thinks, do you know what? I've got no, they've got also a, 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 like a sleeping giant lying at the bottom. They've got no idea what it was, it, what it is, but they just know their day-to-day job, whatever that may be, just is not for them. What would you say to that person? How do they find out? How do they tap into what it is? That, that How do they find their version of the slipper? Well, that's a question. I think I think they'll know. I think that I think if there is something burning in you like that, you're going to know what it is. Mm. And it, you know, if it's to write a novel like you, or if it's if it's to start a, a, a business, or you've got a service that you can provide, you think I'm going. To, I want to do this on my own. You're going to know what it is. I think if you are, if you're just at the point in your work where you're just miserable, then and you don't know what to do you don't know what you really want to do then I think if you can take the leap anyway but that that really rather depends on on your personal circumstances you know I'm not one of those people who just says well you just got to follow your heart whatever I mean people have responsibilities and people need to eat so it's if you can if you can make the if you can make the leap then then do it and even if that means right I'm going to stop doing I've got a friend right now who's who's stopped doing stop teaching and doesn't know what she wants to do next but she just decided this is making me absolutely miserable mm. and I've got to stop so she has and she's now in a bit of a hiatus thinking right what am I going to do next but there is an element there of well your feet are to the fire aren't they you've, you've got to mm. you've got to find it you've got mm. to you've got to so either either you know exactly what it is or you know roughly what it is and you'll find it if you stop or 
you're just going to have to say this is making me entirely miserable i'm going to have i'm going to stop and i will i will find what it is i'm yeah. going to do next so i don't i don't think there's any there's not any really good advice beyond if you're too miserable just stop doing it yeah. i think i think that's it i mean that's basically what i did with 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 working in law firms like this is making me ill and miserable just stop yeah and you know and i'll find what to do next i mean the ideal way is you know what you want to do next you've got your burning passion you've got your business you want to start and you just do your research while you're still in the job you're in or doing whatever you're doing and lay the groundwork and then make the make the take the plunge when you're ready that's the ideal way to do it but life doesn't always work like that Mm. And when you are that miserable, it's very hard because you lose all sense of all your enthusiasm and your hope. You become very negative. Very So that informs you in a bad way. But also, again, Anna, if someone's listened to this and they think, yeah, that OK, fair enough. But I just can't. I've got my mortgage. You know, I'm living month by month and I've got my mortgage to pay next month. And, you know, I, I can't just get a job in a bar, say, and just buy time. What would you say to that person who just but is so miserable, but just, you know, feels they can't afford to leave? What would you say to that person as someone who's found something they love? I would say, think about what you really need. That's, that's, the, that's the baseline. So if you need to keep on earning and you're in a job that you hate, then the first obvious solution is to make a sideways move into another place that does the same thing do the sim do a similar job somewhere else mm. that might have nicer people or a more creative atmosphere if that's not going to work then you will i mean you you need to you need to think about your responsibilities you've got your mortgage you've got to work out how you're going to pay it that's that's the bottom line isn't it really mm. so it's it's make a plan Mm. I suppose mm. it's make a plan and work towards it. And even if that means you can't leave right now, what it does mean is, okay, I, there's an end in sight. So, okay, I'm going to work out over the next say year, give yourself a time limit. I'm miserable. I'm going to put up with it for another X amount of months. I'll put up with it. I will. And I'll work out what to do next and how I'm going to finance it so that I can pay my mortgage. You just have to make a plan. Mm. But I think life is just too. It's, I think it's, it's life's too short to be miserable all the time, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And also, you know, when you have that plan, it gives you a bit of feeling of control. It's that powerlessness, I think, which yeah. everyone feels makes you feel so wretched but actually if you yeah. start thinking do you know what this is my life and I've only got one life and I can start like you say here are little steps um there is a way of doing it I will just ask you this but just because while I've got you here because you could have done we could have done whole next chapters about moving to different countries which they, yeah. I mean if somebody's listened to this as well who's thinking oh you know you live lived in China Egypt where Rygate you know wherever but I'm really oh the idea of moving to a different country it's niggling away at them they like the idea of it what would you say to that person who's got that little seat do it ah. do it I mean it is endlessly fascinating I, I mean I'm completely fascinated by cultural differences it just you know it I've watched the Chinese. I've watched the. I've watched the the Egyptians. You know, it, it, it's so fascinating. The, you know, the, the Egyptians. Every sentence, everything they say has got something about God in it. Everything. So my brother and I have to text with my brother-in-law in Arabic, and so I have to use Google Translate all the time. And I realise that half of his sentence that he's bothering to text me, my poor English person trying to do this in Arabic, <laughs> is and thanks be to God and all blah 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 blah. I think, well, why did I have to translate all that? But it's, you know, it's so, it's just so interesting, and that you know, there is so much to watch. And I always want to, I always want to ask people who live in England who are foreigners, like, what annoys you? What annoys you about the English? Yeah, what, what's annoying about us? But there is honestly, there's so much richness to have in your life when you watch, when you when you realise that some of the things that you think of as certainties about the way you think, other people think completely differently. So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's fascinating. I would say if you get a chance to go and live somewhere completely different, do it. Because everywhere people are lovely. Mm. They are, people are lovely. If, if you're nice to people, people are gonna be nice to you. Mm. 
that's true. What, Everywhere. What do they find annoying about the English? Oh, it's that the, the, the answer I get the most often is they don't say what they mean. Okay. We don't say what we mean. That's so true. We don't say what we mean. <laughs> I thought that was a girl thing, not an English thing. But anyway. No, it's an English thing. Well, look, Have you seen those websites that do what the English say and what the English mean? Oh, no, I need to look at that. That's a proper look, translation. Look <laughs> oh, I'm going to do that. But look, talking, you know, you talk about fascinating. Anna, it's been fascinating speaking to you. Thank you so much for being such a fabulous and fascinating guest. And my first guest from Egypt on the next chapter. My pleasure. Thank you so much. A really enjoyable conversation. Thank you for having me. So there you are. It was so lovely to speak with Anna. And I love that. Make a plan. I mean, come on, we can all do that, can't we? Make a plan and then take that first step. Maybe in some lovely slippers, just saying, but just who knows where this will take you. Now, you can learn more about Anna and her wonderful slippers at her website, shafi.com. The link is in the show notes. And if you'd like to learn more about me and my books, and I would absolutely love that, then you can find me at elliebarkerwrites.com. And last but not least, if you could rate and review this episode, well, then that would be marvellous. And it may even help someone with their next chapter. So I'll be back next week. But in the meantime, go on, make that plan. I know you can do it. And Anna does too. Speak soon. Speak soon.